Father, we're so thankful. Thankful for your creative act that has given us life. And grateful for the new creation that gives us real life, eternal life. Grateful for the privilege of being indwelt by the Spirit. You have not only taken away the penalty of sin, but you have made us new creatures to live in a new way, empowered by a new spirit, a new enablement. And then you use us. (laughs) How remarkable is that? We who were rebels against you are now those who declare your glory. How is that possible? And why would you do that for us? Our hearts are just overwhelmed with gratitude. And might that gratitude compel us this morning? Might it compel us to be bold and clear with the gospel by which you have saved us? We pray these things in Christ's name and for his glory. Amen. The Apostle Paul was a remarkable man. He was a prolific writer. Almost half the New Testament by numbers of books were written by the Apostle Paul. Thirteen of the 27 letter, uh, uh, um, books in the New Testament were written by the Apostle Paul. He was, he was an astute linguist. He was a, a careful theologian, and we have certainly seen that in the book of Romans. He was an effective and wise church planter and pastor. He was a bold apologist. Think about Acts chapter 17 and how he appealed to those who were in Athens with the gospel. He was a a remarkable defender of the faith. He was unwavering in his love of Jesus Christ. And he was a remarkable defender of the purity of, of Christ's church. Just think about his letters to the Corinthians and how boldly he spoke to them to protect the gospel and Christ. But as you think about the Apostle Paul and all of his remarkable abilities, you cannot also help but think about his evangelistic zeal. He had a yearning for the salvation of those who were not yet redeemed by Christ. And we have seen that particularly in Romans 9 to 11. But, but it's not just in these chapters. It's, it's really permeating all of his letters. Consider what he says in Ephesians 6. He says, pray on my behalf that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. I'm bound to preach the gospel so that in proclaiming it, I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, for if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of. For I am under compulsion. For woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. It is lamentable if I do not preach the gospel. It is, it is even perhaps to my condemnation if I do not preach the gospel. We saw this at the beginning of Romans chapter 10. Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer for God for them, for Israel, is for their salvation. In chapter 11, 
We will see in the middle of that chapter, if, if somehow I might move to jealousy my fellow countrymen and save some of them. And of course, the most remarkable statement of all the things that he says in relation to his desire for carrying the gospel, chapter 9, I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh. If I could be damned and that damnation produce their freedom, I would pursue that. So greatly do I want them to know Jesus Christ. Oh, here is a man, my friends, who had a tremendous longing for the salvation of those who were lost, especially for his fellow Israelites. He was a committed evangelist. He understood the mandate to, to preach the gospel that he had been commanded to preach. And he understood, as much as a man can understand, understand it, the weight of the loss of those who do not trust in Christ as their Savior. And he was driven to speak the gospel. And he was driven to speak the gospel, we're going to see in this passage, especially because of the tragedy of the rejection of those who do not trust in Christ. As Paul writes about the responsibility to, to believe in the gospel in Romans chapter 10, he also makes another point, and that is the responsibility to preach the gospel. Not only is mankind responsible to respond in faith to the gospel, and all men must respond but there is also a compelling call and urging a requirement, a responsibility for those of us who know the gospel to preach the gospel. This is what he says in verses 14 and 15. Since all must believe the gospel, all who believe must also speak the gospel. These verses, verses 14 and 15, are a call to evangelism. They remind us that while God is sovereign in salvation, that's chapter 9, and God makes all people responsible for salvation. That's chapter 10. He also makes those who believe responsible to speak the gospel to those who do not yet believe. This is another evangelistic mandate. This is another evangelistic call. But this passage and this message aren't just another you need to be more evangelistic in exhortation. This passage is filled with, with a longing for the lost. This passage is, is almost as if Paul has taken himself and, and put himself in the place of those who were lost and imagines their condition and his heart is broken over them. He pleads with vigor for evangelism by reminding us not only of our calling to evangelize, but reminds us of the desperate condition of those who are lost. In these verses, Paul will ask four rhetorical questions. And those rhetorical questions will remind us and tell us of four requirements for our evangelistic endeavors. These are, these are four responsibilities. These are, these are four aspects of our evangelistic calling. These are, these are four requirements for us to hold out when we're communicating the gospel with each other. As, as you read through these questions... I want you to notice that each of the questions has two verbs, and always the way Paul does it, the, the second verb in each question becomes the first verb in the next question. And so Paul, in a sense, is building his argument and, and building the state of the unbelievers. It's progressive, but, 
But there's also a sense in which it is not progressive, but as one commentator notes, it is regressive. It goes downward because in each question, it, it, it be, the condition of the unbelievers becomes even more desperate and their need even more compelling. And this, this, is, this is the desperate condition into which we have been called to speak the gospel. What are the requirements of our evangelism? Paul points to four requirements. The first is that evangelism provides an opportunity to call on God for salvation. Evangelism provides an opportunity to call on God for salvation. You'll remember in Romans chapter 9, the apostle lays out the doctrine of election, that God is sovereign over salvation. So he says particularly, um, he, he builds the argument all through the chapter, but particularly thinking about Jacob and Esau, he says it very clearly in verse, uh, verse 11 of chapter 9, though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose, according to his choice, would stand not because of works, but because of him who calls... It was said to her, the older will serve the younger. God is working not just in choosing which of Jacob and Esau will be the one through whom his nation will will come, but he is choosing salvation. And notice the three words that he uses in verse 11. It is God's purpose. It is, um, it is God's choice. It is God's call. This is all about God. It's all about his sovereignty. It's all about what he has done. In verse 15, he will emphasize again, this is, this is the work of God. I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have, I have compassion. It is I who have chosen. It is my delight. It is my mercy. It is my grace. And that mercy not only is for the Jews, but verse 24 tells us he has called not only from among the Jews, but also from among the Gentiles. So we also are enfolded into this great plan that he has. So God is sovereign over salvation. And yet there is at the same time a responsibility of man to believe. And to this point, Paul notes that Israel has rejected God. Notice verse 3 of chapter 10. For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. So they want to exalt their own righteousness. They don't want to embrace the righteousness that God provides. And they reject Him in the person of Jesus Christ. They have a responsibility to believe it is the only means by which they will be saved. It is the only means by which they will ever have righteousness to trust in Christ. And they have rejected Him. And yet, in the midst of that, again, there's this massive hope. Notice verse 11. The Scripture says, whoever believes in Him will not be disappointed. Whoever believes. Which means that anyone might believe. Anyone can believe. And he reiterates that same thing in verse 13, quoting from Joel 2, whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. No question, no no condition, no, no perhaps, no maybes, no hesitancy. He will be saved. Anyone who calls will be saved. And that leads him to the first question that Paul then asks about the evangelistic process. And it goes to their ability to believe. If anyone can call on God, the natural question is what he asks in verse 14 how then will they call on Him in whom they have not believed? If they don't believe, 
how can they believe? This question is presupposing that unbelief precludes one believing on his own. If he is an unbeliever, he has no ability to come to God on his own. How will he get there? He, he must call on God. What, what does it mean to call on God? When Paul says, how will they call? What, what does he mean? He's obviously piggybacking on the verb that, that uh, comes from Joel chapter 2 in verse 13. Whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. What, what does it mean to call on God? And to call on God simply means that we appeal to Him out of a sense of inadequacy and out of a sense of need. I cannot do this. I must appeal to one who can do this. It is, it is based on a genuine conviction that God alone is able to help and God alone is trustworthy to do it. This is exactly what Stephen did when he was being put to death. Acts chapter 7 he preaches the message to the Israelites. They reject the message. They pick up stones and boulders and they began to stone him. And verse 59, they went on stoning, Acts 7:59. they went on stoning Stephen as he called on the Lord and said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. As he is being put to death, He appeals to the Lord and he calls on the Lord and he says, if I can stand in the presence of God, it is only God who will bring me there. I must trust in him. Now that's not not the point of, that's not the point at which he becomes saved, but it's, it's the final act of his salvation, if you will, in which one final time he says, everything about my salvation is dependent on God. And if I will be on, in his presence, it's only him. I can't. He must. One must call on God to be saved. Not only verse 11, anyone can, but also we might understand everyone must. The same is true in verse verse 11, anyone can and everyone must. There is no other means of salvation but to call on God. One must call on God But the point of this verse is that there is no ability for the unbeliever to do that without believing. In a sense, we might say that this verse says this. One commentator writes, They can only call on Christ if they have already believed on Him. How will they call? Because they don't believe. They do not accept their, their condition and their mindset is to be against God, not for Him. They do not believe. They are rejectors of Him. And, and if that is the case, they can do nothing to change themselves. And there is nothing they can do to bring themselves to believe. There is nothing that they can do to save themselves. They do not believe because their minds are corrupt And they do not understand and they cannot understand. This is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. The natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God because they are foolishness to him. He he doesn't accept what God says because it appears to him to be foolishness and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. He has no ability. His mind is broken. 
so that he cannot understand. This is what theologians call the noetic effect of sin. The mind no longer works. He cannot understand. He cannot apprehend. His mind is fully corrupt. And not only that, but his will is against God. This is what we saw in chapter 3. This is what we saw in chapter 5 when it says that we were enemies of God. This is what Paul will also say in Colossians chapter 1, speaking about what we were before we came to Christ. He says in verse 21, Colossians 1, although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, so your mind is alienated from God, your mind is hostile toward God and engaged in evil deeds. So we were opposed to Him in our minds and everything we did was also in opposition to Him. This is the condition, my friends, of every unbeliever you know. They cannot come. They must believe and they are fundamentally predisposed absolutely not to believe. And these are the people that live around us. I I saw this in graphic terms several years ago. We received a a PDI, a personal data inventory for counseling from someone that wanted to come and get some counseling from us. And um, this man turned in a PDI with marriage problems that he was having with his girlfriend. So just a little hint, we've got a little bit of a problem to begin with. And so on the last page, we asked some questions, just some open-ended questions. You know, what's your problem? Second question, what have you done about your problem? And we just want to know, you know, kind of how are they approaching, get, get a little bit more information. And he said this, and I quote, what have you done about your problem? Quote, fight, yell, leave, drink beer, smoke pot. Yeah, that's what I did. <laughs> and then I wept. This is a guy that's trapped. This, this is a guy whose mind is so broken that he thinks that when he's in conflict with his girlfriend, the way to fix it is to drink beer, argue, and smoke pot. That's the way the world is, friends. They can't believe. And so what are we going to do? Well, friends, we, we bring them to a place where they can call on God for salvation. We, we bring them to a place where we say, you must call on Christ. You must turn to Him. We appeal to them to say, Christ is your only hope. What else are we going to give them? John Wesley was preaching on one occasion from John chapter 3. And as he preached through that passage, the story of Nicodemus, he kept reiterating the phrase, you must be born again. I said, I said Wesley. I think it was Whitfield. I get my Georges mixed up all the time. It was, Keith is giving me the thumbs up. It was Whitfield. So Whitfield is preaching, you must be born again. And so a woman came up to him afterwards and says, you kept saying that. Why, why do you keep saying you must be born again? Because, madam, you must be born again. There's no other hope. Where are we going to take them? That, that's the hope of our counseling ministry. That's the hope of discipleship. That's the hope of preaching on Sunday mornings. That's the hope of our home groups. That's the hope of Awana. It's, we take them in the Scriptures to Christ. There's nothing else. 
And we want to get them to the place where they will call on the one to whom they are fundamentally opposed. We take them to Him. Evangelism provides an opportunity to call on God for salvation. A second requirement of evangelism, also in verse 14, evangelism declares Christ. A second problem for the unbeliever is stated in that second question, how will they believe? In Him whom they have not heard. The first question demonstrates that they don't call on God because they don't believe in God. The second question demonstrates that they have not believed because they have not heard the gospel call. Where is someone to tell them? Where is someone to proclaim? Where is someone to point them to the truth? The problem, Paul says, is that they have not heard To hear in this passage, in this verse, is is the same as it is in many passages in Scripture. It is not an auditory problem. It's not a physiological problem. It is a heart problem. It is that they have not listened. It is that they have not heeded. It is that they have not heard with their inner ear. It It is that their soul has not responded to the truth that has been given to them. Interestingly, the apostle uses this very same terminology when he talks about the conversion of the Ephesians in Ephesians chapter 4 contrasting their condition with the Gentiles who have not been converted, he says in verse 20, you did not learn Christ in this way. If indeed you have heard Him and have been taught in Him, just as truth is in Jesus. So in Ephesians 4.21, he uses that word heard to indicate a response of faith to Jesus Christ. And that's the same idea he has here in verse 14. How will they believe in Him whom they have not heard. How will, they, how will they respond in faith? The message hasn't been received. Notice specifically what the Apostle Paul says in this passage. The problem is not just that they heard, have not heard the gospel, but notice what he says. Look very carefully. How will they believe in Him whom they have not heard? Now, who's, who's the one that's supposed to be carrying the gospel message? Who's the one that's speaking in this passage? Well, it could be Paul. It could be those who are traveling with Paul. It could be the Roman readers. It could be the, the, the readers of the letter to Romans. But notice that Paul says the belief is in him, the speaker. And who is the one who is speaking? The one whom they have not heard. That is Jesus Christ. And the apostle is saying, when someone speaks the gospel, it is as it were that that Jesus Christ is himself speaking through the words of the one who is communicating the gospel. This This is Christ's message It is the message about Christ and it is the message from Christ when we are preaching the gospel in accuracy and truth. Says one commentator, Christ is present in the preachers. To hear them is to hear Him. Friends, when you're telling the gospel, you're not just talking about Christ. 
It's Christ speaking through you. And when when Christ then is rejected and the message is not believed, it's not you that is rejected. It is Christ that is rejected because it is His message from Him. Listen to what, what, the, what our Savior says in Luke chapter 10, verse 16. Speaking to the disciples, He says, The one who listens to you listens to Me. How can He say, if they're listening to you, they're listening to Me because He's the one that is speaking through them. And the one who rejects you rejects Me. And he who rejects me rejects the one who sent me. If they believe, they're believing not you. They're believing me. And if they reject, they're not rejecting you. It's not about you. It's about me. And it's about the entire Trinitarian Godhead. They're throwing it all away. Friend, when we are carrying the gospel, it's all about Jesus Christ. It's all about His words and it's all about whether or not they are receiving Him or rejecting Him. When people reject the Gospel, don't take it personally. It's not about you. It, it can be. I mean, we, we, can, we can be crude and inappropriate and wrong-headed and malicious and angry. So that's a different issue. But when you are speaking the gospel with clarity, with boldness, with accuracy. And they reject it. It's not about you. They've rejected Christ. They've rejected Christ's very words. And friends, that also means that when we're preaching the gospel, we need to make sure that we are making it all about Jesus Christ. It's always about Him. It's it's about His humanity. We saw that in verse 9, right? When you confess with your mouth Jesus. It's about His incarnation. It's about His right to be our substitute, to stand in our place. It is about His deity. It is about His Lordship. Whoever believes in Jesus as Lord, he He is the one who is master and sovereign. And it is to believe in Jesus as one, verse 9, also who has been resurrected from the dead, who is the resurrected and ascended God in heaven. That's the gospel. And that's what we preach. That's what we make sure that we are doing to make sure that our message is about Him. The gospel message is not about miracles. The gospel message is not about free food like the Israelites thought when He fed 5,000. The gospel message is not about healings and prosperity. The gospel message is about the person and work of Jesus Christ. And that's all it is. And that is completely all that it is. It is nothing else. And the question for us this morning then is, have unbelievers around us heard Jesus Christ speak? It's easy when we're interacting with people to talk about all kinds of things that sound religious but miss the mark of Christ. There's a local restaurant that I frequent Fairly regularly, I take a stack of books, take my laptop and go over there, kind of seclude myself and stay away from email and phone and everything and just kind of work. When I, when I walk in and I don't have a stack of books in my laptop, they look at me like, what's wrong? Are you okay? Why are you not, why are you not sticking around for three or four hours today? And so because of that, I've, I've gotten to know the, the employees over there 
it's it's pretty regular that the manager will come over and talk to me. She's she has a diff- difficult extended family situation. And so she comes and she'll just kind of update me on how things are going with the grandkids and so on. I've told her probably four to six times, hey, we've got a great counseling ministry across the street. We'd love to help your daughter. You know, just let me know. We'll bring you some forms and be glad to help. That's good. It's not Christ. She needs to hear definitively, much more clearly, the hope of Christ. And friends, when we, when we miss talking about Christ, we miss the opportunity for Christ to speak through us. Evangelism is about declaring Jesus Christ. Have they heard Jesus Christ? Have they heard the exclusivity of Jesus Christ? We're coming to a season when we're going to be gathering together with friends and family and a lot of those friends and family are not saved. Can we just covenant with each other? then when we talk to our friends and family, we're going to be pointed, not in a malicious way, not in a condemning way, not in an accusatory way, but in a hopeful way. We're going to talk about Jesus Christ. We're going to point them to the cross and the hope of the cross. That's what evangelism does. Evangelism declares Christ. Thirdly, third requirement, is that evangelism also speaks the gospel This third question likewise builds on the second question. If they will believe and if Christ is going to speak, then the third question is, how will they hear without a preacher? How will they hear without a preacher? When we hear the word preacher, we think Sunday morning service, corporate worship. And when we hear the word preacher, when I read that word preacher, some of you inwardly went... Not me. Well, that's not what the Apostle's talking about here. He's talking about, about a herald. It's not, it's not a preacher as in a role. It's a, it's a herald, someone who declares and, and someone who speaks and someone who makes a, a public declaration about truth. In, in secular culture, the, this herald was, was particularly well-known. It was a very common thing. Anyone who was a prince in the Greek culture had a herald. He had someone who was articulate and wise and well-spoken that would stand in his stead and speak for him. What's particularly interesting that as we take this word herald and see how it's used in the New Testament, it's used in a very different way from the culture. The culture talks about the preeminence of the herald, the one who speaks. In the New Testament, the word herald, the noun referring to the person, is only used three times. And it's not used here. Here, we have a verbal form. It's a participle, actually, for those of you who are geeks and want to know. It's a participle. And it refers to the one who is heralding. What is important in New Testament is not the herald. It is the message that he proclaims. It is the message that he advocates. It is the message that he preaches. What is preached is of ultimate importance. The force and the power of the preacher are insignificant. It is the message of the preacher that is compelling and powerful. That's why the apostle will say in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, starting in verse 22, he says, Indeed, Jews ask for signs, Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. 
To Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. It's folly to the world, but we don't know anything else except that kind of folly because that's where real power is. It's not in the messenger, it's in the message, and the message is Christ. But friends, note this also. It's got to be spoken. It's got to be spoken. If, if they need to call and they haven't heard and they need to hear, how will they hear unless someone proclaims, calls, urges, exhorts, compels, demands that they come to trust in Christ? The gospel must be spoken. We preach a verbal message. There, there, there's, there's been for way too long, I don't know when it started, but it's way too long, this idea floating around, and you have heard this statement, always preach the gospel. Use words when necessary. Right? That's ridiculous. It's always necessary to use words. There is no preaching of the gospel without words. It is a verbal communication. There's nothing that gets transferred without the communication of the gospel. So when I was in college and seminary, one of the big buzzwords was lifestyle evangelism, right? So, so live out the gospel. Now we should be living the gospel. The gospel should be transforming us. We, we should be kind to our neighbors. We should be benevolent to those who need the gospel. But friends, we, we don't just live the gospel. We speak the gospel. Demands that we proclaim, it demands that we preach Christ crucified, risen, ascending, ascended, and ruling Lord of heaven. We must preach that. And, and, and I would encourage you, if, if you don't know a method for preaching the gospel, learn a method now. You, you've got to have some way of getting people to the gospel. What is the core of the gospel Well, we saw it in verse 9, right? We've already talked about it. Jesus, His humanity, that He can, because He's a man, He can be our substitute. He's Lord, He's deity, He's master, He demands our allegiance, and He is resurrected from the dead. He paid the penalty for sin, and He obliterated the debt of sin by rising from the dead, and sin and death are vanquished. Do you believe, and do you follow this Savior? That's the gospel. Or you can use evangelism explosion like I have for years. Key it around six key words. Grace, man, God, Christ, faith, hope. That's the gospel. And you fill it in with Bible verses attached. Or you can use the Romans road. Or you can use 2 Corinthians 5.21 and the substitutionary work of Christ. He gets my sin. I get His righteousness. Do you believe that He can provide righteousness for you? Lots of different ways to communicate the gospel. Just learn one. And speak it. Because it, it must be spoken. We must use words. There's a fourth requirement for the gospel. And that is it is commissioned by God. Often when there are questions, it's the last question that's always the zinger. And that's the situation here as well. The first three questions all relate to those who are lost. And they will never respond Unless the gospel is preached, unless Christ is preached, unless they are compelled to call on Him. The question is, how will they preach unless they are sent? That's the question for you and me. 
How will they preach unless they are sent? This question is a reminder that evangelism and gospel proclamation are not about individual messages. We are not proclaiming. We are not speaking on our own behalf. We are certainly not speaking our own message. And we are not speaking our own message by our own compulsion. We are speaking because God has sent us. And this question reiterates the same theme of what what Jesus said to the disciples in Luke chapter, or excuse me, in John chapter 20, how he sent them out to preach. It's the same thing that Jesus talks about in Matthew chapter 28. You know the passage well, verses 18 to 20. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and I am with you always even to the end of the age. Go! This is the command of Jesus. It's not just the command of Jesus to the eleven disciples. It is the command of Jesus to all men everywhere. In fact, we we think that this is probably the situation in which Christ appeared to more than 500 people. That there was this was a large gathering of people. This is, this is Christ's commission for the church. And that's why I said earlier, when he says, how will they hear without a preacher? It's not just about the guy who wears a pastor hat on Sunday morning. It's about all people. Because, friends, we have all been commissioned. We have all been sent. We have all been commanded to take this message out. And why can Paul say this? Why can, why can Paul ask the question, how will they preach unless they are sent? Why can Paul ask the question that preaching is necessary? Why can Paul say that God has sent preachers? Because of what Isaiah 52 says. Here he quotes it at the end of verse 15. How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. Isaiah 52, as I noted when I read that passage, is hope for the Israelites when they were in captivity in Babylon. And in chapter 52, he's demonstrating that that he's going to set them free, not just from Babylon, but he's going to set them free in the day of the Lord, the coming full day when his kingdom is set up. He says, um, verse 1, the uncircumcised and the unclean will no longer come into you, into your city. The uncircumcised, the Gentiles that have been overrunning you, they will not overrun you anymore. Verse 2, shake yourself up from the dust, rise up, O captive Jerusalem, loose yourself from the chains around your neck. You've been bound in chains and I've set you free. How did that come about? Verse 3, you will be redeemed without money. It wasn't money that set you free. It, 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 it was the grace of God that set you free. Verse 6, therefore my people will know my name. Therefore in that day, that little phrase, that day, that's looking forward. That's not just Babylon. That's the ultimate day. That day, I am the one who is speaking. Here I am. Come to me. I have life. I have liberty. Come to me. And then he transitions to verse 7. How lovely on the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who announces peace, who brings good news of happiness, who announces salvation and says to Zion, your God reigns. He's king 
for all of eternity. And someone gets to go on the mountains that surround Jerusalem and declare to the nation, your God reigns. What a privilege. How is it that Paul can say, there's got to be a preacher? Because, friends, there's always had to be a preacher. There's always had to be someone to say, Christ is the good news. Christ is the hope. You must repent and you must trust. Now, what's really interesting about this passage is that Paul says, quoting from Isaiah, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. That's just kind of weird in some way. It's a verbal message. But he says, it is the feet that are beautiful. Did he, did he forget the analogy he was making? No, he didn't forget it. You remember what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 6 about the armor that we wear in our spiritual battle? having shod your feet, your feet, with the preparation of the gospel of peace. When we have the gospel, we go with the gospel. We've got to speak it, but we are going with the gospel. When Jesus compels us to be commissioned with the gospel, He compels us to go with the gospel. And because we're going with the gospel, we're not standing still, Our feet are carrying us to the places where we proclaim the gospel. This is somewhat odd as well in that he says, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. Now we know from Isaiah 52 that the feet are traveling through the mountains. Maybe wearing sandals, maybe wearing some boots. My guess is they didn't have the kind of socks that we have today that are really cushy and protective of boots. And my guess is the guy that's climbing up that mountain with boots or in sandals is going to be filled with blisters. And feet just kind of look weird anyway, don't they? I mean, I I suppose there's somebody that thinks feet are beautiful, but not so much for me. Certainly not dusty ones. Certainly not blistered ones. And my guess is that when they've been in those hot, sweaty boots, cultivating blisters, gathering dust, gathering dirt, when they took those boots off, it's not going to smell quite as good as your lunch is going to smell today. Just saying. Nothing beautiful. What makes them beautiful? Notice what he says. You bring good news. Good things. What makes them beautiful is what they are carrying the gospel truth that they are carrying. What's the gospel truth that they're carrying? We've already talked about it from Isaiah 52. They're they're bringing freedom. When we take the gospel to people, my friends, we're not just we're not just taking. You're going to be you're going to be liberated in the by and by. We're we're bringing freedom. They are bound and they are shackled by sin. Remember that guy I was talking about? That guy who's smoking pot to try and fix his problems. He's just bound. There's no freedom there. And we're taking Him the message that is going to liberate Him. 
We're taking another message as well. (laughs) I think it was actually about Wednesday, working through this passage, before my eyes were suddenly opened. He's quoting from Isaiah 52. What happens after Isaiah 52? Isaiah 53. I know. I went to school a long time to figure that out. Who's in Isaiah 53? It's all about Jesus. What makes the message beautiful is the message we carry that brings the liberation. Because the liberator from the captivity, the end of chapter 52 is the suffering servant. Who was despised. And we did not esteem him. Our griefs he himself bore. Our sorrows he carried. He is smitten of God and afflicted. Pierced through for our transgressions. Crushed for our iniquities. All of us like sheep have gone astray. All of us have turned to our own way. And the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on Him. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. Verse 10, the Lord was pleased to crush Him, putting Him to grief. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many. That's what makes the message beautiful. That's what makes the feet beautiful. It's not about us. It's about the one to whom we point. Such a privilege. Does this passage encourage you to evangelism? It should. We've been called to it. And in that calling, we also need to recognize the weight of the condition of those who do not believe. I said early on that this is a passage is in a sense regressing. It's going down. Let's turn it around. And let's start from the bottom up. And consider these questions not as questions, but as conditional statements. And see what God has done for us. Let's read it this way. If only someone might send someone with the gospel message. He has. If only we who are sent could speak the gospel message. We can. If only we had a gospel message to speak. We do. Then brothers, those who cannot believe, can believe. That's their hope. And that's our joy in the gospel responsibility. Father, we thank you. For this message, it's familiar to us, this passage. 
Many of us have read it many times. But Father, might we not gloss over it and its power, its responsibility, and its hope. We are grateful, Father, for how you are making us individually and corporately to be more bold with the gospel. But might this passage compel us even more to be bold with the hope of the gospel. We pray this for the glory of Christ and in His name. Amen.